scripture reading today is coming out of Matthew 2, 7 through 23. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest on the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been mocked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophet, may be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It's coming. Thank you, John. I didn't know you were a musician. This is um, that's about all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a good start. 
It's good to be together this morning. See if my, uh, there we go. Last week, if you were here or happened to be online, we went back to Matthew chapter 2 and we looked at some prophecy that comes out of Micah and then we looked a little bit at Isaiah and saw that they are foretelling a ruler for Israel. And then we noticed, and this is how it impacts us, not just a ruler, but one who is God, who is master, who is Lord. We then brought up the importance of yielding to Jesus Christ as our Lord. If you're a Christian, that's an important piece of what we need to be about. And and we just touched on um, four different pieces of that. Um, because it's in our best interest to yield to him. Secondly, we owe it to him because of what he's done for us. We are grateful. Thirdly, he is Lord, whether we decide that or not. That's just who he is. Inherently, he is Lord. And because, maybe the most important one, he's a loving father. He cares about us and he wants relationship with us. This brings us to a place of yielding to him. So today, I'd like to make my way through these three points. Um, I'd like to talk about Herod a little bit. You saw Herod pretty prominently in the, in the scripture read there this morning. I'd like us to just spend a little time understanding a little more of who he is. That gives us insight into the scripture, into what is being meant by the passage. And then we can learn some lessons from that. We'll go to, back to Matthew 2, the part John read, and just walk through it a little bit more. And then there's a point of impact for us today, and I put that up there for you so you can be ready for that. Fear versus faith in our life. Let's just ask God's blessing as we begin looking at these things. Father, thank you for the chance to be here. I'm privilege to be able to bring a little bit of truth to to us today and let us worship you through this time of of thinking and hopefully learning a few things and and we ask that you would work in our hearts we need that we always need that and we know that you're faithful and you will do that thank you for each one here just bless this time if you would in Jesus name amen Herod the Great, you've heard the name, he's great because he's famous, not because he was good, by the way. Um, Let's just look at Herod for a minute. Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomian, that is, he was from Edom. Edom is the name of the descendants of Esau. Do you remember Esau, Isaac and Rebekah's oldest son, the second being Jacob, So we have Edom, the nation that came from Esau, and we have Israel, the nation that came from Jacob, or Israel. This is a start to the bad relationship with the Jews. He wasn't a Jew. They didn't like him because he wasn't a Jew, but he was king of the Jews. Tension went back clear to when, of course, um, Jacob stole the birthright from Esau, 
And then as we move forward, there's multiple prophecies against Edom, against the nation of Esau, because of the way they treated Israel. They constantly raided and warred against Israel. They were a thorn in Israel's side. Herod became governor of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, in 47 BC at about 25 years old. He started pretty young. Keep in mind now, Herod wasn't autonomous. He was under the Romans. Rome was the world power, at least in this part of the world. And so he was sort of a vassal king. In other words, they had the final say on so many things. Major decisions, punishments, and those sort of things were supposed to go through the Roman emperor, who at this time was Octavius, better known as Augustus Caesar. He was, he was the emperor for most of Herod's life. After various battles, struggles, power plays, bribes, and even murders, Herod became king of Jerusalem and Judea in 37 BC. So most scholars be, put this time as the beginning of his reign, and they divided into three parts. And we're going to look at each one for a, a little bit. Um, let's start with the first one. It's often called consolidation. That's a negative term in this case, by the way. Herod had to contend with many adversary, adversaries during, during these years, 37 to 25. He first had to deal with the Jewish people and the Pharisees. They didn't like Herod. Like I said, to start with, he wasn't a Jew. He was also friends with Rome. They didn't like that. They didn't like Rome. Over the years, he tried to persuade the Jews to his side by punishment and reward, as well as many improvements to the land. Herod also felt threatened by the Hasmonean family. These were the rulers before Rome took over, which wasn't that far before his rule. They were not in favor of Herod or Rome. They were a constant threat and a constant um, thorn for him. And the third thing Herod's contending with is his own family. They became his enemies over the years. Now with skill and cunning, he imprisoned and murdered many of these, each one because they were a threat to his kingdom, his power, or even his popularity. He seemed to be a master at working situations and telling tales to his favor in political circles, whether it's in Rome or otherwise. Around 30 BC, Emperor Octavius, that is, um, Augustus Caesar increased Herod's territory after Octavius defeated Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt. So he gave Herod more. Much of this increase, however, was due to Herod's cunning and his bribes, etc. Now, domestically, in his family life, Herod had to continually watch his back because of inflamed relationships. It was around this time that he executed his favorite wife because she became a threat to him. After which, he, he fell into depression for a time. He'd already done away with her parents. He would later execute the two sons she bore to him, who were his favored sons. So executions and other punishments to maintain control were commonplace for Herod. Eventually, through lies, accusations, and other deceitful and unlawful practices, Herod pretty much cleared the land of any relative or the Hasmonean family, those previous rulers, any of them that would have been, um, could dispute the occupancy of his throne. It's reported that the emperor of Rome, Octavius Augustus again, said this, it's better to be Herod's sow, that is his pig, than his son, 
in a Jewish context, the pig had a lot better chance of survival than the sun. And the word sow and sun sounded real similar in the Greek language. It was uh, probably a well-known <laughs> saying. That brings us to the second uh, portion of the reign, prosperity, you might label it, um, 25 to 14 B.C. Now, this period was much more calm, having done away with all the th- or most of the threats. Um, it was marked more by Herod's building projects, and he introduced many games and entertainment Um, which was some of it against Jewish law. Herod is very well known for his buildings, and and many of you are aware of that. He built theaters, amphitheaters, race courses for games. He built fortresses as well as palaces for himself. Perhaps you've heard of Masada, a well-known fortress palace that he built for himself as a place of safety. Also, he's responsible for the difficult and splendid project of the seaport in Caesarea on the Mediterranean. He may be best or most well-known for um, the rebuilding and the expansion of the Jewish temple, which was, by the way, the temple of of Jesus' day. Why did he do this? Perhaps it was to make up for the bloodshed and general displeasing of the Jews, maybe to win favor and keep control, keep the peace. Some of these building projects were not finished till after Herod died. Many of them serve as a backdrop, though, to the things we know of and we're, are familiar with in the New Testament, the events that took place around Jesus' life and, and beyond. There's no disputing that Herod was a brilliant creator and builder, very, very sharp. You might say that the many projects and accomplishments did really improve the land, the, the land of Israel. And, and many of these famous projects are still visible, at least in part, very much still there today. During these years, Herod even lowered the taxes for the people, to, I think a couple of times, not so much to help the common folk, but to keep control, to keep peace by coercion. The final and third per- period um, is labeled domestic troubles. 14 to about 4 BC in his death. To start with, anyone who has 10 wives, I would think, is going to face domestic trouble. Of course, they were not all at the same time. Some of them left him, others of them he killed. But now, at this point in his life, many of Herod's children were old enough to, guess what, follow in their father's footsteps and begin to jockey for his position or or for position against Herod and against the throne. The wives, the mothers of the children were also uh, fighting to establish their own son or their family in the kingdom. Slander, deceit, various sorts of cunning were employed to attain, attain their result, the end result that they desired. As mentioned, Herod ended up killing his favorite two sons out of suspicion that they were after his life and his throne. Much of that was placed in his mind by other children of his or family members. Later, he killed more sons. Herod also had to deal with local enemy uprisings during this time and actually fell out of favor with Rome for a period of time. Um, Around 4 or 5 BC, Herod became terminally ill. At this point, he had altered his will concerning who would succeed him in ruling multiple times based upon suspicion, fear, or execution. Herod had either killed off or lost trust in most of his sons to succeed him as ruler. 
by now, mentally, Herod was a mess, pretty much a tyrannical and obsessive king. Fear and rage seemed to be his motivators. By the way, it was somewhere right in here that we see the wise men from the east come inquiring about the new birth, the birth of the new king. Before his death, which he knew was coming most likely, he summoned notable Jews. Listen to this. He summoned notable Jews from all parts of the nation. When they arrived, he shut them up in his hippodrome, and he instructed his sister and her husband that the, the moment he died, the moment Herod died, they were to slaughter all those Jews so that there would be national mourning. He's a wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. By the way, after his death, his sister and husband let them all go home. That was... Now, as mentioned, <clears throat> it was toward the very end of his life that we are made aware of Herod, biblically speaking, due to the arrival of the wise men from the east. With the background here that we've briefly looked at, we're not surprised at Herod's feelings about the new king of the Jews. He had ways to deal with threats. Even at this point, he was pretty sick. He probably knew he was, he was going to die. We know he did die soon after. So the killing of the babies of Bethlehem out of fear and the need to have control really does not stand out as all that surprising to Herod with what we just looked at. Now it should be noted, many of the rulers of the day were about like Herod controlled by threats and violence. They lived and they ruled out of fear and self-interest. It becomes quite obvious that Herod and his life, his rule, was characterized by fear. And interestingly enough in our passage here, I think it's compared a little bit to the faith of the wise men by which they were motivated Let's come back to Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 2 and just, we're going to scan through that a little bit. It won't be very detailed, but you can follow along. We find, first of all, that in verse 3, Herod was disturbed. We, we touched on that already in, in last week, I think. After finding out there was to be born a king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, he was disturbed. And then he found out where he was to be born, right? Bethlehem. And then he secretly called the wise men and gave them some instruction. We're, this is verse 7 now. He says, go find the child and report back because I want to worship him too. Of course, we know that was false. I wonder though, as the wise men face him and he tells them this bold-faced lie, has Herod's decades-long reputation preceded him? Did they know about Herod? Did they feel threatened by Herod? It's actually sometimes some, so, a little bit amazing. Herod didn't send an envoy with them to pinpoint the location of the birth. But we do know that the wise men proceeded in faith to find the child regardless of Herod. And after their encounter with Christ, I'd like to touch on that more next week, the wise men encountered Christ, they were warned to not return to Herod and go back by another route. That's verse 12 now. So we come to verse 13. 
and 1415, another night journey is about to take place. Joseph is warned in a dream to get going to Egypt with the child and his mother. He's given the reason. Herod is trying to destroy him. Joseph got up and did that. It would have been a bit of a journey south to Egypt. That night and following days, God's purpose continued with Herod, even Herod's evil dominating the scene. God's purpose continued. The child here stands as priority, even in, even in the statements spoken there. The child and his mother, the child is priority. And we see God preserving the Christ child. And of course, there's prophecy, there's a connection to prophecy multiple times. I don't have time to go into it this morning. I was kind of hoping we would, but we, we don't. But just as we look at it briefly, verse 15, I believe, out of Egypt I called my son. The prophet there was speaking of national Israel, but Matthew relates it to the greater son, Christ, coming out of Egypt. We come to verse 16. Obviously, Herod feels deeply threatened by this child, a helpless baby, but he seems to be living out of fear and letting control dominate his life. As we looked at, this was his, his modus operandi. This is how he rolled. In fact, I thought about some of us with the last name King. We might need to go about changing our name if we didn't want our heads chopped off him. Coming to verse 16, when Herod discovered that he had been tricked, maybe your translation uses a, a different word, outwitted. It could even be translated mocked. When he discovered that he had been tricked, mocked by the wise men, he became furious. Look at your translation there. Maybe it says he became very angry or very enraged. One says he flew into a rage. I think the word here speaks of intensity, extremely angry, fury, rage, which aligns, of course, with the historian's account of this ruler, Herod, especially toward the end of his life, living in fear and unreasonability. Clearly, Jesus, though a helpless baby, was a threat to worldly, selfish rulers from the beginning. Herod then carried out the horrible deed of murdering numerous baby boys in the small town in order to rid himself of this perceived threat. Now this he did to those who would have been near the age of Jesus, estimated based upon the wise men's testimony somehow. And Jesus at this point may have been a year and a half or so, under two we know. It's hard to know exactly how many babies were killed. Of course, any is too many. But Bethlehem was a small town. Estimates put the number anywhere from 6 to 30. I wonder what Herod's approval rating looked like after this incident. I don't think it was good to begin with, but... Prophecy again there. Again, I don't think we have time to look at that this morning, but Matthew comes back and pulls in the Old Testament. Remember, he wants the Jewish readers and all of us to realize that this is the Messiah, the one foretold from the prophets of old. We come then to verse 19 through 23, that end section. Herod has died, and Joseph has another dream. Take the child and his mother and go back. Now, back to Joseph probably meant, let's go back to Bethlehem. 
However, somewhere along the journey or sometime during there, there's an awareness of Herod's son, Archelaus, being in power in Judea. Herod's son, Archelaus, at this point was busy building a reputation that looked about like Herod's. So there was concern, natural fear of returning there. And Joseph has another warning dream, and he goes to the north, outside of Archelaus' territory, to Galilee, and settles in a town called Nazareth, which again, Matthew brings up prophecy to connect us to that. Joseph, uh, at this point, could have been called Joseph the dreamer, like Joseph of old, kept having, having dreams. Now we can be sure that Matthew, as an author here, is pressing the point, as I mentioned, that Jesus is the Messiah based upon the prophets of old. The main points of this passage are pointing to the Christ child. He's the true Messiah. He's the future king of Israel and even more, the Messiah for the Gentiles. I don't think the author wants us to miss that point. Remember, he is worthy of our worship. That points to him being God. I want to spring off of this. We realize that faith in Christ is vital. Faith in him, the child of Christmas, it's vital. I think it's fair in this passage that we've just kind of briefly gone over to see faith juxtaposed with fear. The wise men responded in simple, real faith to the birth of the king. Herod, on the other hand, responded out of deep-seated fear. Fear versus faith. Let's think about that a little bit in our own lives. Now, I want you to know that certainly I don't picture anyone here like Herod. We do not have the fear like he did. Thanks be to God for that. But as Christians, those who have placed faith in Christ, we can still struggle with fear. We can still have fears and even allow those to motivate us in various ways. There's plenty of fears out there to tempt us. I'd like you to take just a minute and turn to your neighbor. That could be someone in front of you or behind you or to your left or to your right. Or if you're sitting all alone, you can scoot over and chat for just a minute. Two things. It'll be just a minute or two, but how, number one, how, how can fear manifest itself in our lives today? And if you're comfortable, you can share a bit of your own experience dealing with fear, either now or in the past. I don't mean to pick on anyone here, but we all have faced or are facing some kind of fear. And then second, what does fear in its various forms motivate us to do? How does it motivate us in our daily lives. So take just a minute. I need a drink of water anyway, so.
Okay, you've solved all the problems now, right, about fear. You can all go home now. I, I really would be interested to know, granted you weren't just talking about what was for lunch, um, that what, what did come up, and I, I truly mean it, what, what kinds of things do we face in our lives? There's so many different ways that fear can assail us. We could have fears based upon world events and large-scale stuff. We could be afraid of the dark. We may have fears personal to us based upon past circumstances from childhood, deep in the corners of our being that no one else knows. We sometimes fear the unknown or perhaps failure. We may have doubts and fears about our beliefs in God and what happens when, the life, when life is over. Perhaps we even have a fear of God, and I don't mean the good kind of fear. We're scared of God. Sometimes confidence, when in Christ there can be confidence. I think most like, it's most likely that we have all felt fears in some way or another, or are, are feeling fears now. Fear can come in so many ways. The story is told about a Japanese soldier by the name of Shochi Yokioi, or something like that, who lived in a cave on the island of Guam to which he fled in 1944 when the tides of war began to change, World War II. Fearing for his life, this man stayed hidden for 28 years in a jungle cave, coming out only at night. During this long period of time, the self-imposed hermit lived on frogs, rats, snails, shrimps, nuts, and mangoes. Yokyoi said that he knew the war was over, because of leaflets that were scattered throughout the jungles of Guam, but he was afraid that if he came out of hiding, he would be executed. Finally, two hunters came upon him and told him that he need not hide any longer. At last, he was free, and with new clothes to wear and food to eat, he was taken by plane to his home. The man lived as a prisoner of fear, unfounded fear. It seems that this is some most often the case, the fear that we face that haunts us is unfounded. In thinking about fear motivating us, and this is the second one that has a one by it, I apologize. <laughs> it's really supposed to be a two. Um, <clears throat> it, it, fear motivating us, I think it's almost inevitable that fear will motivate us to act in certain ways Sometimes fear becomes such a part of our being that we don't even know it. We're motivated then to protect ourselves in all kinds of different ways. These protective actions are not reasonable or based in belief, on, belief in God usually because the fears are often unfounded. They often have no basis in reality. Here's a short story about fear's motivation. It happened in Spain. In Barcelona, a truck was rolling along carrying an empty coffin. A farmer who was hitchhiking thumbed a ride. He was bouncing along in the rear of the truck, which was open when it started to rain. He examined the coffin, found it empty, and crawled inside to keep dry. <laughs> you, you feel fear where this is going. There, there he fell asleep. Further on, two other hitchhikers got a ride on the truck. They were going along at a lively clip when the farmer inside the coffin pushed open the lid, stuck his head out, and observed, Oh, it has stopped raining. <laughs> the two other hitchhikers were so terrified that they leaped from the speeding truck. 
One of them was killed. Now, I don't know if that story is real or not, but fear is real. And it can be like a disease motivating us. It can grow and infect. I don't think it's something we should be ashamed of so much as something that we just need to address. And for you and I, and I'm speaking to those in Christ, those with a believing faith in Jesus, if you don't have that, there's a way to find that. Please speak to one of us. But there is a cure for those of us in Christ who face fears. What does God have to say about fear for those of us who believe in him? Let's look at just a few scriptures. Hopefully you can read that. Romans 9.30 says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. This is the starting place. We have attained righteousness. In this case, it means Christ's righteousness. It means our salvation through faith. Belief in him. This is the key to dealing with our fear. This is the starting place. We have confidence in Jesus Christ. It's the confidence the wise men exhibited and the faith they had as they sought Christ, even perhaps at personal risk. Whereas on the other end, Herod was motivated and living out of fear. Faith is the key to attacking and conquering fears and insecurities. This comes based upon salvation and security in Christ. Now, Scripture does speak a lot on fear and, of course, faith. Why is that? Because we need it. At least I think so. It's common to humanity, isn't it, to struggle with fears. But we are freed from fear in Christ. That's us. We are in Christ. Here are a few other encouragements from the Scripture. Psalm 34, 4 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. God is the answer to the fears we face. Faith in Him. How about Joshua 1.9? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be, be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a pretty famous verse. God's telling Joshua that he's okay because I'm going to be with you. And we know this is a reality for us too. In fact, at the end of Matthew's epistle, he says, Jesus says right before he ascended to heaven, I will be with you even to the end of the age. 2 Timothy 1.7 for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, not of fear. This is not a part of God. Fear is not a part of who we are then as we live in faith, as we are in Christ. I think that fear and faith cannot occupy the same space simultaneously. If we take God at his word, if we trust him, fear disappears. It has to. Fear cannot remain when true faith is invited in. It's as if you have one extra spot at your table. You can entertain one guest. Who will you invite as you face the problems of life or insecurities that you have? I know there are areas for me that I need to kick out the guest of fear and have the guest of faith at my table purposefully inviting the guest of faith. Now again, what I mean here in, as far as faith is concerned against the fears that we face, I don't mean an overarching do I believe God is real sort of faith. 
But believing that God can help you deal with the areas of fear and surrendering that to him, trusting him, replacing that fear. As faith replaces fear, peace comes. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus is speaking. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be afraid, for God gives peace. And I think it's to that particular area that you spoke to one another about, or maybe you didn't, but the area that you face. Peace is really a wonderful gift. How about Hebrews 13, 6? The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The fear of man, perhaps that's something you face. I know I have and do sometimes. The Lord is my helper. Nothing can shake the peace that he gives. And we saw that Herod tried, but he was not free from fear. It grew worse. It is said of Joseph Stalin that he was constantly in fear of being poisoned or killed. He had eight bedrooms, which could be all locked up like safes in a bank. Nobody ever knew in which of these bedrooms he slept on any given night. But I wonder, did he sleep in peace? He had the wrong source of peace. There's other stories about monarchs and powerful people, rich people who lived out of fear. They had no peace. Wealth, power, control, pleasure, none of these bring relief to fear. Only faith faith in God, that brings peace. I think we can learn a lesson with this discussion. And as we reflect on the contrast between Herod's extreme lifestyle of fear and control and the wise men's actions of faith to find the Christ and to worship him, surrender to him, we can understand that the key to dealing with our fears I hope that you and I can strive to replace the fears that we face or will face with faith in God. A faith that says, God, I know you're big enough, powerful enough, loving enough to take care of these fears of mine. I give them to you. Can you do that? Will you do that? How are you going to do that? Let's just close and ask God to take those fears and to help us in that process of trusting Him. God, we're just grateful that You are big enough and not just barely big enough, but You are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. And You love us and You will take those fears. So much of it comes down to us surrendering ourselves to you. And fears can look so different, God, in our lives. Sometimes we don't even recognize them as fears. And they can motivate us to do things that become habits, become part of us that are unhealthy. Please reveal these things to us. And then, as they're revealed, bring encouragement, good friends, good community 
that we might be strengthened to surrender them to you. I'm thankful that you're trustworthy. We can trust you. You will never let us down, and you will never leave us or forsake us. Again, I'm just thankful for the wise men. We know so little about them, but their faith and their confidence seemingly to seek the truth, to seek the child, to seek you, and to worship you, regardless of what may happen. Just grateful for your word and for this time together now. In Jesus' name, amen.